Uh, if you've been with us over the summer, you'll know that we have just gone through a series about practices, about different practices of our Christian faith and life. Um, and, and you might remember that we talked about how a practice continually does two things. It roots us in Christ, and it does so for the sake of the world, for the sake of, of others. Um, and you, you may or may not remember, this may be a little bit more of a stretch, but we talked about in the very first sermon in this series, um, in John chapter 15, that the central practice, really all other practices of the Christian life are, are coming back to this, and that's abiding in Christ. So all of the different things we do, our prayer and um, forgiveness and all the practices we went through are really different ways of abiding in Christ and finding our way back to that place. Um, and today, our text is actually another, another call to this, another returning to abiding by going into the book of Psalms, uh, which is the ancient prayer book of the church. Praying the Psalms, uh, uh, Chandler just talked about our daily offices, that's central to our daily offices, doing it every morning. Um, and my hope is that our exploration of this psalm today will help us to learn another way, another particular way of abiding in Christ through the Psalms. And learning, to, and learning to pray the Psalms, not simply read them, but pray them um, as a way of talking to God, it's an absolutely essential practice for the Christian. And it's a practice that the people of God had always engaged in since ancient Israel, who, who wrote this Psalm, and all the way through the ages and every century Christians have been praying these words that we just read. So to help us understand what I mean by praying the Psalms, um, I want to go to a quick quote by Eugene Peterson, who's the pastor um, and translator of the Bible into the message. And he helps us, I think, understand the Psalms, um, praying the Psalms, and the Psalms as tools. And so here's what he says. Prayers are not tools for doing and getting, but for being and becoming. So they're, they're tools, but they're tools not for doing things and getting things, but for being and becoming. In our largely externalized world, we're urgently presented with tools that enable us to do things, like a machine to clean the carpet, and to get things, like a computer to get information. We're used to this, but we're not so readily offered tools that enable our being and becoming human. At the center of the whole enterprise of being human, prayers are the primary technology. Prayers are tools that God uses to work his will in our bodies and our souls. Prayers are tools that we use to collaborate in his work with us. So in other words, prayers are tools that God uses in us and through us, and that we use to collaborate with him, not prim primarily, not primarily to get things, but primarily to become in a deeper way the people who God is calling us to be, which is citizens of his kingdom that reflect the values of his kingdom. And the Psalms are essential tools in this toolbox. They're comprehensive. They cover all the range of human emotion. Um, and they're honest. They're brutally honest at times. Much more honest, I think, than we are sometimes willing to be in our own prayers. They give us language. They give us freedom to pray things and to pray in ways that we might not be used to or comfortable with. The Psalms are also their prayers of, of fellow pilgrims, fellow people journeying through faith who are set on being and becoming the people of God. So all the joy and the sorrow, the beauties and the mysteries, the pain and, and, and sorrow of life, we see it all. And it goes up and down. If you read through them, you'll see it's like 
really joyful one moment, really sorrowful the next. Just kind of like life. So today we're going to explore one psalm which gives voice and language, Psalm 84, to one very common and raw human emotion. And it's a longing. It's a desperate longing for, for God's presence. A yearning to stand before God and to know one is on holy ground. Like Moses knew when he stood on holy ground before the burning bush. And I know, I know, this is a very real longing of, all of, of many of you. Because you've told me. And even if it's not, maybe, even if you're one step away and you're in a place where you'd say, I'd like to long for God's presence. I want to want to be with God, to know him. You know, this is an invitation for you too. And if you're there today, ask God, just ask and think, what would my life be like? What might change? What would be happening in my thoughts and my desires, my emotions and my actions if I did long to live in God's presence? What might that look like differently than it is now? Psalm 84 was written for Israelite pilgrims on their journey to Jerusalem to to worship God at the temple. It's a pilgrimage psalm. They would pray it as they traveled. And as they went on this holy pilgrimage, they were going to the very place, to the temple, where they knew God's presence was thick. So let's allow their prayers of longing to penetrate our hearts and see if it begins to cry cry out in us. And I know we already read the scripture once, but sometimes... Reading scripture is really more about digesting it and chewing it like a cow chews cud. And that's what I hope that we do today. Think about that image. Eating it, right? Eating the Bible. It's weird, but you'll remember it. That's what we're called to do until it actually becomes part of us. Like when you eat food, it becomes part of you. And that's, that's what we're called to do. So we're going to read it again and set it, in the, it again. And also you may notice today there's a lack of images in the slides today, and that's also for this reason, to, to work on our imaginations themselves, to sit and force ourselves to try to imagine sitting in God's presence in our unique minds, what could that look like? So I'm going to read Psalm 84 again. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. In 587 BC, the powerful empire of Babylon 
conquered Jerusalem and destroyed this temple that we've been reading about, that the pilgrims were traveling to, that they journeyed to for so long with this psalm on their lips. And you may think this might have made Psalm 84 obsolete, but in fact, quite the opposite happened. The absence of the physical temple gave the prayer a new potency. The longing to be at home with God became the central hope of Israel's faith. And this, is, and this is the central idea of the psalm. I'm sure you've heard it. But what it's saying is what the human heart longs for is God's presence. Not just their hearts, but our hearts too. What the human heart really longs for is God's presence. Now, I realize you may not feel like that's what you long for. I get that. You must understand the psalmist, as he's, as he's saying this, he's a poet. He's not a lawyer. He doesn't prove his case as in a court of law that every heart longs for God's presence. That's not how he goes about it. The psalmist, the author here, is inviting us to pray honestly with him. It's an invitation to pray, to face our own desires, to lay them out honestly before God and, and ask and look at it. What is it that I desire? What am I moving towards? In this psalm, we're invited to come into God's presence, to come in and be people blessed by God. The psalm articulates this blessedness by God in three blessings. They're in there. It says, blessed are three times. And here's what they are. Blessed are those who long to be in God's home. Blessed are those who seek strength on this journey. And blessed, at the very end, blessed are those who live in trust. Now these blessings mark those who do believe their deepest longing for God's presence and are committed, and are committed to asking the Holy Spirit to speak through their daily longings and emotions, their daily up and down, and further direct those towards God's living presence. So we're going to look at each of those three. The first one again is, Blessed are those who long to be in God's home. And that's encapsulated in verses 1 through 4. So we're just going to kind of walk through the psalm. So, so, so Psalm 84, verses 1 through 4. Blessed are those who long to be in God's home. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs and faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. We get this beautiful image. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. And here's the blessing. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. It's a vivid description that we're given of God's, of God's presence as a home, as an intimate home. And this is a common image in the Psalms and in all of Scripture, a home, a place of safety and beauty and nurture. There's many other Psalms that talk about this. Psalm 23, a very common Psalm you may remember, is, it closes with, Surely in good, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house or the home of the Lord forever. Or Psalm 61 says, I long to dwell in your tent forever, which is again an intimate image of a home, and to take refuge in the shelter of your wings, the home of a bird. So God's presence creates the refuge and peace of a home. I know all homes aren't like that. They're not all those sorts of places. But is there a home that you can call to your mind, your imagination, a house that you long to dwell in, that captures your imagination for the dwelling place of God? One that I like to think of from a, 
a lovely book that I'm sure some of you are familiar with called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, is Mr. Tumnus the Fawn's home in, in the Chronicles of Narnia when he invites Lucy Pevensey over for tea. Lucy is caught in the snow, of course. She's lost and doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know where to go in a strange land, and Tumnus offers her a warm welcome. He says, there will be a roaring fire and toast and sardines and cake. Doesn't sound lovely? Maybe not the sardines, but <laughs> listen, to, listen to what it's like. Lucy thought she had never been in a nicer place. It was a little, dry, clean cave of reddish stone with a carpet on the floor and two little chairs. One for me and one for a friend, said Mr. Tumnus. And a table and a dresser and a mantelpiece over the fire. And above that, a picture of an old fawn with a gray beard. In one corner, there was a door, which Lucy thought must lead to Mr. Tumnus's bedroom. And on one wall was a shelf full of books. I want to be in that home. It's simple, but it's a place of warmth, hospitality, and peace. Do you know the longing for whatever place feels like home to you? Now, this section of the psalm also holds an interesting contrast about God's home because it uses the name the Lord of hosts. And that's the most common name for God in the Old Testament, actually. But the Hebrew meaning pictures God as the leader of a mighty army, of an angel army, a glorious, powerful ruler. So there's this warrior God. Yet in the home of this mighty warrior God, the temple, the psalmist immediately switches and describes the small, humble sparrow, right? And the swallow nesting in the temple courts. You can see the image of these grand temple courts and the pilgrims seeing the, up in the eaves the nests of the sparrows flitting around. And they're, they're eager and longing, saying, why do they get to dwell right in your temple all the time? So even they have a home here, a place where they can raise and nurture their young near the great altar of the mighty warrior God. This great God has room in his house, even for, the, even for the humble sparrow. And this shows us there's something grand and powerful and majestic and intimate and nurturing about God. They're both. There's something both grand and powerful and intimate and nurturing. And of course, this is the same God we know who, who was intimately known with his disciples who stooped to wash their feet and the same God who sits in glory and rules the universe today. This is, this is who the psalm cries out for, this living God, that the heart and the flesh sing for joy to. The blessing in verse 4 concludes this first section. Blessed are those who dwell in your home, always singing your praise. It's a house of worship. It's a house of worship and a house of care and nurture. A house where one feels the strength and power of God, and marvels at that, yet is led gently to the home through kindness and hospitality. Do you long to dwell and be in this house? The second blessing is, verse, is in verses 5 to 7. Let's look at that. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are the highways to Zion. 
In other words, blessed is the pilgrim who has the paths to God's presence always on her heart, who is always yearning to return to God's house and longing for strength on this journey. They're blessed too. This beatitude, this blessing grants some great news to us about God's presence. And that's this, that it's not static, it's not insular, it's not just in one place, but also to be found along the journey, on that pilgrimage. The one whose heart is set on entering God's home is actually already in God's presence. I said earlier, the Israelites knew that the temple was this, this thick place of God's presence, where, God, where they knew he dwelt and they would worship him. This is true, but they also realized that God wasn't limited by the temple. We hear King Solomon praying this before he built the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 2. He says, Who is able to build God a house, since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him, except as a place to make offerings before him? So they knew, and we know, no building can contain the Lord Almighty. But in verses 6 to 7, the psalmist paints a picture that affirms this presence, God's presence with the pilgrim. The Valley of Baca, we read about that. What does that mean? It's a representative of a dry, deserted place, a desert place. Since the Exodus, when, when God had provided water in the desert for Israel, a miraculous provision of water in the desert had always served as an image of God's blessing. And it makes sense when you're in the desert, you need water to survive. Now listen to verse 6 again. Should be on, oh, it's not up there. It's okay. Springs of water are bursting forth in the desert as the pilgrims pass through. These pilgrims are journeying through deserted places, through dry places. And they're already in God's presence and receiving his blessing because their heart is set on and fixed on their destination, which is the courts of God. And instead of growing weary and faint on the journey, like that's what normally happens, right? When you're on a journey and traveling far, you'd grow weary and tired. Um, something else happens here. The pilgrim pursuing the meeting place of God, we learn, will grow in strength as they journey through the desert. How is this? Well, it's because this isn't a geographical journey also that's being talked about. It's a relational one. A journey of the lover God and the beloved, his people. And if you've ever loved another person, you know that when you walk through the desert place together, a rich strength develops in the relationship. Take a wedding day, for example. I officiated my first wedding last Saturday. Yeah, it was great. It was really fun. I loved it. And the prayer that I've heard at weddings before, and it is a, it is a good prayer at a wedding, uh, that should be prayed is that the strength of the marital relationship be the weakest on that day, on the wedding day, than it ever will be. Think about that for a second. It's because the couple will love each other the least at the beginning of a marriage than going forward. Because the strength of lovers is meant to continually grow. It grows as they endure the journey together, as they share hardships and, and sufferings united in Christ. My wife and I, Deanna, had a very difficult first year of marriage. It was not easy. And many days in that first year passed where we felt confused and struggled and lost a little bit. But I tell you what, when we sat across the dinner table on our one-year anniversary, I realized something all of a sudden. I realized that I had a friend sitting across from me who was going to stick it out with me through anything, no matter what. 
and that it was about so much more than those initial romantic love feelings. It was about so much more. The strength grows over time. We had endured a dry place and went from strength, some, some strength, yes, but to much more strength because of it. And this is the journey for the pilgrim who has the paths to God in their heart, who longs for his courts. The early church in the New Testament in Acts, we read about, they also knew this. They knew they were on a journey with the lover God, who they had radically encountered in the person of Jesus. They knew it was God's presence that carried them along this journey. They even called their community the way. That's what they termed themselves. And this first church, they had these beautiful spaces and times of worship that we read about, like in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends on them in power. They felt the presence of God. But guess what? They had no illusions about the desert places, the dry places either. If you just flip over a couple pages in Acts, you'll start to read about the apostles being beaten, stoned, and thrown in prison. Stephen is martyred for, for confessing the Lord Jesus is Lord, the first martyr of the church. But their hearts were captivated by the highways to Zion. They went from strength to more strength in, in these times because they actually believed that their suffering was not evidence that God had abandoned them, but an opportunity for them to walk on the narrow way and to witness to the God who makes springs burst forth in the desert and who makes broken people into wells of living water for the sake of others. That's how they saw their suffering. Do you long to walk through the desert places like this with the ancient paths to God on your heart to offer yourself as a well of living water for others? That's the call here. And lastly, the third blessing concludes the psalm by describing again God's home with deep longing. Verses 10 to 12 say, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a simple doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is upright. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said this verse, this blessing at the end, is the key to the whole psalm. Because there can be no blessedness, no abiding in his presence, if there is no trust in the Lord. Now, easier said than done, right? I agree. But as we inhabit the world of this psalm, as we sit in it, if we enter into it, we see that we actually have every reason to trust God as he is here described. Listen to this image, glimpsing as the doorkeeper into the house of God just for a moment, just a little glimpse of the crack of the door, just getting a whiff of that teapot and hearing the crackling of the fire. He's saying, it's better than dwelling in wickedness for days and years on end. This shows us a radically different view of time, doesn't it? than we're used to thinking about. It's like the psalmist is calling us to lift up our eyes from the wickedness and the fog that we're around so often, the confusion that we're around so often of our culture. And just for a moment, if just for a moment we can dwell in the richness of God and the beauty and goodness of his home, if we can do that just for a moment, it's like, have you ever taken off from YVR and, and penetrated that, that kind of 
cloud veil that we live under, especially in the winter, and you get a glimpse of the sunbeams above the clouds just, just for a moment, and you realize the glory above us all the time. You know what that's like? I do. Vancouver feels like that in the winter, physically and spiritually even too, a fog. If we can experience this glimpse of God's glory, just a glimpse, a taste, we can persevere a whole lot, a whole lot of evil with hope. It just takes a little glimpse. And his reflections on surviving the horrors of concentration camps, namely Auschwitz, an Austrian psychologist named Viktor Frankl talks about what enabled him and others who, who banded together with him to keep going in these absolutely inhumane and horrific conditions. And he reflects on this. What kept him and others from simply giving in to death like so many did? And this is what he saw. This is what he reflected on. Did they have something to live for? Did they have a framework for their suffering? Something to fight for that gave them some sort of meaning amidst a horrific mess that they were in, a horrific mess that they were in. And if they did, if they had something, if they saw a glimmer of something, they could make it. They could fight for life. But if not, there was no hope. And those who lost hope, he watched this happen. Those who lost hope simply died under those conditions. And this psalm for us is a witness to our real, to our eternal, to our meaningful existence. It's proclaiming that there actually is a God and we're longing for his home and he has a home. He's a good God. He's a son and a shield providing and protecting for his children. He's a God who promises to fulfill all of our longings. Can you believe that? All of our longings in the broad scope of eternity. But not before then. Don't be confused on that one. All of our longings won't be fulfilled in this life. We as Christians live in God's time, not ours. But guess what? He's saying, come. He's saying, come to this place. Come and trust me. I'm trustworthy. And you will be blessed because I will delight in you. Remember, the psalmist is a poet, not a lawyer. His words are painting a picture of God whose love is so real whose presence seems so wonderful that it does make us ask, right, how could it be? Is it true? Charles Wesley asked the same question in his 18th century hymn, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's the conviction of Christians that God did die for us and lives for us isn't it? In the person of Jesus. And because of that, this home that we've been talking about in Psalm 84, it's real and it's open. And there's a seat at the table for me and for you, for each one of us, for anyone who trusts.